0: At the interface of neuroscience and psychology is neuropsychology, where the worlds of science and clinical practice collide. It's at this juncture that translating the fundamental science into real-world applications happens. I'm Carolyn Barry, and welcome to A Grey Matter, the podcast of the Queensland Brain Institute at the University of Queensland. Today, we have a guest host, Dr. Sally-Ann atkinson Atkinson-Ao, the former and still only female Lord Mayor of Brisbane, who, apart from her trailblazing career, is a long-standing board member of our Institute. She talks to Professor Gail Robinson, clinical neuropsychologist at the Institute.
1: I'm delighted today to be talking to Professor Gail Robinson. Um, Gail is a professor of clinical neuropsychology at QBI and UQ's neuropsychology research unit. Which all sounds very complicated, but Gail, what is a neuropsychologist? Because I would
2: have thought most psychologists had something to do with neuro. Thank you for asking that, because most psychologists are more interested in the clinical or mental health aspects. But the neuropsychology part means that I'm specifically interested in thinking skills, so cognition and behaviour and emotion in the context or when there's brain damage. So if something happens in the brain, it can affect our thinking, our behaviour and how we feel. So my specialty is really in the consequences of brain damage. So you're not actually looking to cure them. Well, that would be great. So rehabilitation (laughs) means it's really restoring a person to be able to function as well as they can with what's happened. So it's not a cure in the sense of I didn't remove the trauma. You can't sort of rewind and get rid of a stroke but you can certainly restore or help maximize function after some sort of disturbance to the brain. Is the brain damage caused by accidents or disease or? It can all be of the caused above. by all of the above. So, mm. when someone has an accident, it can be because of a trauma. So, traumatic brain injury causes changes in the brain. So, sometimes there's swelling or damage or blood gets out and it sort of invades brain tissue. So, that can happen. Also, when someone has a stroke, then sometimes if there's not enough oxygen in the brain, then different parts of the brain tissue can die. And so that can impact function and how the brain then uh, is able to think or, or how you behave in the world. Uh, and then when you have something like a dementia That's simply when the brain starts to shrink or atrophy starts to result. So the changes are not always damage in terms of a trauma. It can just be uh, the brain is changed because of either a disease, an accident, a different um, process. So all of those things can actually affect. And even just, dare
1: I say, getting older Naturally, are you looking at the aging brain? Because Absolutely. Anybody like me who is over I was going to say over seventy, but over seventy-five actually, we're worried about where is our brain going and what's going to happen to it, even
2: if we're not expecting to get dementia. So for everybody, there are changes in the brain as we age. And in fact, the brain starts to, in a sense, lose some of its functions really from a very young age. So part of the neuropsychologist's job is to figure out what's normal in terms of just ageing and what has a disease process as well. You know, when someone has an actual dementia, it means that there's a greater loss than we would expect uh, if someone was just ageing in a healthy way.
1: Because one of the exciting developments when I first came aboard QBI, I remember, was Perry Bartlett's research that brain cells can regenerate, whereas It used to be the received wisdom
2: that once you lost your brain cells, tough luck, they'd gone forever. And now we talk about neuroplasticity. Mm. So that can happen in almost any context, so particularly rehabilitation, so following what we call acquired brain injury. So that's when you have a stroke or you have something that happens as an adult, like a traumatic brain injury, so you have a car accident. So in that uh, instance we can help the brain to rehabilitate and almost have behavioral or stimulation methods to help it recover. And of course, there's spontaneous healing or spontaneous recovery as well. So sometimes the brain just does that on its own. So it's not just lost. We can help some of that come back. Um, But now in dementia, one of the exciting areas, I think, is really to combine a rehabilitation principle, so help the brain recover. But in dementia, you want to help Maintain function, and that can be done with everybody who's who's aging. So, what do you do to keep your brain in tip-top condition? It's a little bit like exercise. They say use it or lose it. Now, that's a little bit crude, but there is an element of truth in that. You know, to have a a range of stimulating activities is important.
1: Delighted to hear about exercise because I get that. I get really disturbed when I hear that crosswords are the way to go because I'm really, really bad at crosswords. (laughs)
2: So, I mean, exercise can be—you know—even if you're playing, say, tennis, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of skill involved in that. So you're you're using concentration, hand-eye coordination, exactly, hand-eye coordination, the motor skills, so coordinating the brain with action. Um, But even to do that, you need to be able to visually track the tennis ball and estimate where it's going to land in order to connect your. Tennis racket with the ball, oh, so there's a lot good. of coordination as well as the what we call more cognitive
1: skills. Mm. Now you're head of a lab here at QBI, um, but are you dealing with real people? Are you dealing with people in a clinical way as well as absolutely looking, looking at them through so a microscope?
2: I'm, I'm a clinician by training, so mm-hmm. I have a clinical psychology and a clinical neuropsychology degree um, and a PhD. And so what that means is that my research is with patients. So I work with healthy people to look at the healthy ageing process or development of thinking, but I mostly work with lots of people who have brain disorders Gail, can you tell us something about you? Where do you come from originally? Do you come from Brisbane? Did you go to university here? Um, So I was born in Perth and then I did most of my schooling and university at ANU, so in Canberra. Um, though I did a Bachelor of Science Mm -hmm. with Honours in Psychology for my undergraduate degrees and my Master's was in Clinical Psychology but my research components were always neuropsychology, so I was very much involved in literacy, so developmental reading and spelling disorders as well as acquired, Uh so when people have brain damage and they lose the ability to read. So that's where I started, and I think it was an interest of mine going way back, just um, how do we... Read and spell, and of course, I loved reading. Mm-hmm. So once I was out working in the hospitals, and I started in a geriatric and rehabilitation unit for neurological disorders and dementia in Canberra, I realised that you can't work clinically and tell people they've got a memory impairment and not understand what it is. So I or just why
1: or why they yes have it. exactly. Yes, yes. So
2: I realised immediately when I started working in hospitals that as clinicians we have to also be scientists. So for me, clinical work and research go together. So I went to the UK, actually, and I ended up in London for 14 years working in their National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery.
1: Wow. It's a a very rich and varied background, if I may say so. And I noticed that you've appeared at uh, writers' festivals, the Edinburgh Writers' Festival, which is also one of the most distinguished writers' festivals in the world.
2: So you've written... A book or books? Yes. So I, well, obviously I write a lot of research and we do technical things. But in uh, 2019, I published a book with a former patient who had a very severe traumatic brain injury. She was run over by a police van in central London and ended up in my hospital. And she was very famous at the time. She was the newsreader and very well known. So she had a severe injury and really quite bad memory loss. For the first few months. She was in a coma for several days. That was Sheena McDonald. So I saw her as an acute patient, she doesn't remember this, on the hospital ward. And then I worked with her and her now husband, Alan, just in terms of strategies and really being able to maximise her neuroplasticity. I've often wondered that
1: people who have accidents seem to rehabilitate at different paces and in different ways. So for Sheena MacDonald, being run over by a police van would make you very angry. So would her emotional state of anger, or perhaps she'd forgotten about it by the time she was getting better?
2: Yeah, so Sheena had sort of that lovely disposition of just moving forward. So she was always looking to the future and moving forward. So I think that helped her a lot. But of course, all injuries are different. So the book really Mm. is about... It's partly about Sheena, so she writes her story. It's partly about her husband and his journey as a carer. So carers are the forgotten heroes, Absolutely. for people with dementia. Oh, yes, the, the,
1: the carers, and I know a couple of them. They're saints. They um, are the saints. saints.
2: The people who look after yep. friends of mine with dementia. Um, Absolutely, but the the carers. So it's for carers as well because mm. it, you you know my dad loved. Alan, as the carer, loved hearing and just identifying mm, with that mm. role over many, many years, that burden. And so that's why um, it was a three-way book. So I wrote more for professionals. Mm-hmm. I wrote in a way that new graduates could understand and really apply principles of rehabilitation soon after an accident and then longer down the track. So Rebecca, Rebecca Sharrock. Yes. Tell me about her. Becky basically has what we call a highly superior graphical memory. It basically means she has a super memory for personal events. So she remembers all her ordinary events in her daily life, things that we just are not interested in and we just automatically forget. Mm -hmm. She relives her memories of every day of her life from quite young. So she can give you an account of what she had for breakfast, who was where. On the
1: 14th of July in 1990 sort of thing. Exactly. Is that considered a, a defect or is that is that a useful skill to have? Mm. It would seem to me that your brain would be very clogged up if you're remembering the minutiae mm. of what you had for breakfast yes. on so the 14th of July. So it's been very
2: much a burden ah. um, in the sense of, you know, a lot of people think, great, you know, I'd love to have a memory like that, but it's actually oh. quite traumatic because their mm. memories don't switch off. So mm. it, it interrupts sleep. It means that, you know, she almost has an emotional reaction. And does she worry about the things that she remembers? She used to. So she has all sorts of what we call comorbidities. So she has other problems because of this. So anxiety, a little bit of obsessive compulsive disorder. So she ruminates. She reflects, she thinks about these memories over and over and over. So she has now strategies to Mm. distract herself or ways to cope with it. But that's really taken a long time to learn. She's in her mid to late 20s now, so it's been a long Mm. life journey. And and who has taught her these strategies? She's been working with a psychologist and um, also, I guess, her mother's fantastic. So her mother's very supportive and very... Good at reinforcing all those strategies. Mm. So, in daily life. And how life. is
1: that diagnosed as a disease? You might just think there's somebody with a very good
2: memory. So, it's not a disease per se. It's more like, um, I guess it's what we call a disorder in the sense of it's a special gift. But again, the brain has a set of resources. So, in a way, it's at a cost of other things. So, she has this amazing memory. The diagnosis really comes because she, they have what they call a dates test. So if you ask her what day of the week was um, July 14, 2010, she would be able to think what weekday that is, whereas Mm. you and I would just be guessing.
1: This is a personal question. So quite often when I wake up in the morning, I don't know what day it is. I have to lie there for a bit and remember what is today. Is today Wednesday? And what am I doing today? Yes, I'm going out to talk to, to Gail. Now, is that normal or is that a worry?
2: So I know a lot of people worry about say dates. And, you know, for people who are retired, who aren't sort of on a a routine, it's harder to just be on top of what day it is every day. Mm. But worry someone, I would be advising them to orient. Just take that as sort of a morning exercise to actually look at the date Mm. and to to orient yourself. And then, you know, that comes with repetition reinforcement. So we're always talking about strategies. So, I guess part of my solution here is really where are you putting your attention? So, it's really about connecting up your brain or, or the, the sort of processing of that with the date or with the the name of the person, so using strategies like mnemonics mm. and creating little issues to yourself. And what we
1: call mindfulness. I mean, I'm always losing things, for example, um, and I think I, it's because I
2: haven't concentrated on where I've put that thing. Exactly, and that's, ex- that's just what I was talking about. So when I say attention, it's about concentration mm. and mm. being mindful. So a lot of people these days talk about mindfulness and being present. All mm. that means is that you've literally got your attention with you right now. On we're the, not here with you thinking about yes. you know, your coffee and cake this afternoon mm. or whatever it is. So it's being where you are and putting and, your mind, mm. concentration on that.
1: And that is a useful strategy.
2: It's a very That's simple one, but a lot mm. of people, it's amazing how many people aren't really where they are. What we're talking about is that sort of healthy ageing. Mm. This is a healthy ageing and people just have lost that focus or concentration mm. and being mindful or present mm. where they are. So I think that sorts out a lot of the normal worry is actually just developing some of those skills of literally deciding what you want to learn or remember and then making that effort to so, be... Yeah, so present. what's Im- what's important in Absolutely. Other words. The brain is quite adaptable. We talk about neuroplasticity and really, you know, a lot of what the brain's exposed to and the patterns, so the inputs, being processing Mm -hmm. them in a certain way and what people respond to, it really does shape the way the neurons and the brain cells talk to each other or Mm -hmm. communicate. And so exposure and experience we know has an effect. Now, neuroplasticity can be good or bad. You know, you can develop good connections, but you can also develop connections that aren't helpful. There's always a spectrum. Mm. So I think there's a spectrum from normal to what we call abnormal, and I guess that's where clinical neuropsychology and clinical Mm. psychology come in. Mm.
1: So how important is memory? Because obviously it's important that we remember some things, and it's a bit of a nuisance if we remember other things. So how do we filter out the right things to remember?
2: Well, I think what's funny about memory is that most people take it for granted. So memory is something that you just do and you filter out irrelevant, you keep the things you need. For most people, it's only when it goes wrong that we start to realise what's happening. So for Rebecca, for example, she's unable to filter out anything. So she's remembering too much, which really Mm -hmm. crosses into the abnormal and becomes distressing at certain points because there's so much remembered and for most people, they worry about, you know, losing certain things. Well, there's another element which is fairly normal, which is overload. So mm. there's a capacity issue here in terms of how much you can remember of what type of information. So I think, you know, for most people, there is a a, a filtering. I don't need to remember you know that there was a bird on the road on the way mm, i was driving mm,
1: mm. or what you know. i had for lunch <laughs>
2: yesterday <laughs> absolutely but
1: but i is this once again a feature of the aging brain because you have so much in your head and so much memory whereas a child of 6 say hasn't got much memory
2: and they're just a sponge and they're That's just right. they, yes, they, they're, but they're just, just little absorbed they, lots of yes and they haven't but eventually they also start to remember events we can remember things about our Personal life, we also can learn new knowledge. so mm. children mm. just love learning. Mm. Now dementia is slightly different in the sense of the hope with dementia is that we can maintain function or inha- enhance, improve function so that people are able to manage every day better and and to hold their level of ability and not lose it. so so that people aren't declining. And one of the reasons, you know, a lot of my research in some ways, sure, it's not a cure, but if we can improve function and hold that for longer, also if we can identify the different types of dementias, then that gives the drug therapies a chance mm. to actually be more targeted. Right now there's not a lot of precision targeting that's happening. So that's one area which we're really working on in in my unit is early diagnosis And differential diagnosis, there's lots of dementias. It's not just one thing.
1: And it seems to me it's about the management of the dementia. If we don't have a cure, managing it is what we need to do.
2: Absolutely, and managing it earlier. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we need to manage it. To do that, we need to identify what type of dementia. So I would do a totally different thing with someone who has a language dementia As opposed to someone who has a memory dementia, Mm. as opposed to someone who's got more of a, what we call a frontal lobe dementia, a behavioural disorder, or someone who's got a vision problem, we would not do the same thing with those. They each need Mm. a different type of input in order to maximise or help them function. So other research that I have going is clinical translation studies. So we're developing assessment tools to be able to identify... Yes, you need to tell us what clinical translation is. So some of my research is relevant mm. to what do we do in the clinic? How do we even detect a memory disorder? How do we know someone has a problem? That's really critical um, in terms of identifying who needs input. So my clinic also develops assessment tools and methods for being able to identify problems earlier. The other thing that we do is really trying to understand what the frontal part of the brain is doing. Mm -hmm. So behind the eyes or above the eyes, that part really is involved in complex thinking. So to even have this conversation, you've got to think of what you want to say. Mm -hmm. So how do you get a message? And then how do you get that out in conversation? So that's my more Mm -hmm. theoretical research, is understanding what goes wrong when people don't talk. Or how they talk. Or how they talk, mm. exactly. Yeah. So, language, where the language part of the brain meets the controlling executive controller, mm. the front part of mm. the brain.
1: And so, is this why people with dementia, and I'm thinking of a friend, tend to be rather uninhibited?
2: That's exactly okay. part of the frontal lobe. <laughs> so, the inhibitory control mm. is typically we think about that in the right part of the frontal lobe. So, above the right eye or behind the right eye, that comes with frontal lobe decline. And that's very common.
1: Gail, so why Brisbane? How come you're here? We're very glad you
2: are, but uh, after all those years in London and Canberra and wherever else. So London was fascinating and I was there 14 years at this hospital and then I was just ready to come back to Australia. So I ended up in Brisbane because I came to the University of Queensland and now really I love the combination that the Queensland Brain Institute has going from basic neuroscience and even drug development right through to... The clinical work that I do, so it sees the full spectrum involved in brain disorders. I love that combination because I think we all learn from each other. I find mm. out much more about the molecular and the cellular mechanisms in the brain. And then people are also learning what does a brain disorder actually look like, mm. uh, even, say, a motor neurone disease. And it's taking research out into the real world among real people. That's right. It's connecting the dots mm. between the lab and the people. I'm sally Ann Atkinson, and I've been talking to Professor
1: Gail Robertson, who's a Professor of Clinical Neuropsychology here at the Queensland Brain Institute.
0: If you'd like to learn more or support the work we do at the Queensland Brain Institute, head to qbi.uq.edu.au. You can also download a copy of our latest magazine, The Brain, The Nature of Discovery. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening.